Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. Seekers by Robert E. Howard And some return by the failing light and some in the waking dream, for she hears the heels of the dripping ghosts that ride the rough room beam. Rudyard Kipling they were the brawlers and braggarts, the loud boasters and hard drinkers of Farringtown. John Coolrick and his crony, Lilip Canool. Many a time have I, a tousled-haired lad, stolen to the tavern door to listen to their curses, their profane arguments and wild sea songs, half fearful and half in admiration of these wild rovers. I, all the people of Farringtown, gazed on them with fear and admiration, for they were not like the rest of the faring men, they were not content to ply their trade along the coasts and among the shark-teeth shoals. No yawls, no skiffs for them. They fared far, further than any other man in the village, for they shipped on the great sailing ships that went out on the white tides to brave the restless gray ocean and make ports in strange land. Ah, uh, I mind it was swift times in the little seacoast village of Faring when John Coolrick came home with a furtive lilip at his side, swaggering down the gangplank in his terry sea clothes and the broad leather belt that held his ever-ready dagger, shouting condescending greeting to some favorite acquaintance, kissing some maiden who ventured too near, then up the street, roaring some scarcely decent song of the sea. How the cringers and the idlers, the hangers-on, would swarm about the two desperate heroes, flattering and smirking, guffawing hilariously at each nasty joke, to the tavern loafers and to some of the weaker among the straightforward villagers these men were their wild talk and their brutal deeds their tales of the seven seas in the far countries these men i say were valiant knights nature's noblemen who dared to be men of blood and brawn and all feared them so that when a man was beaten or a woman insulted the villagers muttered and did nothing and so when mole farrell's niece was put to shame by John Coolrick. None dared even to put into words what all thought. Mole had never married, and she and the girl lived alone in a little hut down close to the beach, so close that in high tide the waves came almost to the door. The people of the village accounted old Mole something of a witch, and she was a grim, gaunt old dame who had little to say to anyone. But she minded her own business, and eked out a slim living by gathering clams and picking up bits of driftwood. The girl was a pretty foolish little thing, vain and easily befooled, else she had never yielded to the shark-like blandishments of John Coolrick. I mind the day was a cold winter day, with a sharp breeze out of the east, when the old dame came into the village street, shrieking that the girl had vanished. All scattered over the beach and back, among the bleak inland hills to search for her, all save John Coolrick and his cronies, who sat in the tavern dicing and toping. All the while beyond the shoals, we heard the never-ceasing droning of the heaving, restless gray monster, 
and in the dim light of the ghostly dawn, Maul Farrell's girl came home. The tides bore her gently across the wet sands, and laid her almost at her own door. Virgin white she was, and her arms were folded across her still bosom. Calm was her face, and the gray tides sighed about her slender limbs. Mole Farrell's eyes were stones. Yet she stood above her dead girl and spoke no word, till John Kurek and his crony came reeling down from the tavern, their drinking jacks still in their hands. Drunk was John Kurek, and the people gave back for him, murder in their souls. So he came and laughed at Mole Farrell across the body of her girl. Zounds, swore John Kurek. The wench has drowned herself. Lylip? Lylip laughed with a twist of his thin mouth. He always hated Mo Farrell, for it was she that had given him the name of Lylip. Then John Kurek lifted his drinking jack, swaying on his uncertain legs. A health to the wench's ghost, he bellowed, while all stood aghast. Then Mo Farrell spoke, and the words broke from her in a scream which sent ripples of cold up and down the spines of the throng. The curse of the foul fiend upon you, John Coolwreck, she screamed. The curse of God. Rest upon your vile soul throughout eternity. May you gaze on sights that shall sear the eyes of you and scorch the soul of you. May you die a bloody death and writhe in hell's flames for a million and a million and yet a million years. I curse you by sea and by land by earth and by air, by the demons of the swamplands, the fiends of the forest, and the goblins of the hills. And you, her lean finger stabbed at lilip canoe, and he started backward, his face paling. You shall be the death of John Kulrek, and he shall be the death of you. You shall bring John Kulrek to the doors of hell, and John Kulrek shall bring you to the gallows tree. I set the seal of death upon your brow, John Kulrek. You shall live in terror, and die in horror, far out upon the cold gray sea. But the sea that took the soul of innocence to her bosom shall not take you, but shall fling forth your vile carcass to the sands. I, John Kulrek. And she spoke with such a terrible intensity that the drunken mockery on the man's face changed to one of swinish stupidity. The sea roars for the victim it will not keep. There is snow upon the hills, John Kulrek. In the ear it melts, your corpse will lie at my feet and I shall spit upon it and be content. Korek and his crony sailed at dawn for a long voyage, and Mole went back to her hut and her clam gathering. She seemed to grow leaner and more grim than ever, and her eyes smoldered with a light not sane. The days glided by, and people whispered among themselves that Mole's days were numbered, for she faded to a ghost of a woman, but she went her way refusing all aid. That was a short, cold summer, and the snow on the barren inland hills never melted, a thing very unusual, which caused much comment among the villagers. At dusk and at dawn, Maul would come up on the beach, gaze up at the snow which glittered on the hills, then out to sea with a fierce intensity in her gaze. Then the days grew shorter, the nights longer and darker, and the cold gray tides came sweeping along the bleak strands, bearing the rain and sleet of the sharp east breezes, and upon a bleak day, a trading vessel sailed into the bay and anchored, and all the idlers and the wastrels flocked to the wharves, for that was the ship upon which John Kulrek and Lylip Kunul had sailed. Down the gangplank came Lylip, more furtive than ever, but John Kulrek was not there. To shouted queries, Kunul shook his head. Kulrek deserted ship at a port of Sumatra, said he. He had a row with a skipper. Lads, one me to desert too, but no, 
I had to see you find lads again. Our uh, boys? Almost cringing was Lidlip Canool, and suddenly he recoiled as Maul Farrell came through the throng. A moment they stood eyeing each other. Then Maul's grim lips bent in a terrible smile. There's blood on your hands, Canool, she lashed out suddenly, so suddenly that Lidlip started and rubbed his right hand across his left sleeve. Stand aside, witch, he snarled in sudden anger, striding through the crowd which gave back for him. His admirers followed him to the tavern. Now, I mind that the next day was even colder. Gray fog came drifting out of the east and veiled the sea and the beaches. There would be no sailing that day, so all the villagers were in their snug houses or matching tails at the tavern. So it came that Joe, my friend, a lad of my own age and I, were the ones who saw the first of the strange thing that happened. Being harem-scarum lads of no wisdom, we were sitting in a small rowboat, floating at the end of the wharves, each shivering and wishing the other would suggest leaving, there being no reason whatever for our being there, save that it was a good place to build air castles undisturbed. Suddenly, Joe raised his hand. Say, he said, do you hear? Who can be out on the bay upon a day like this? Nobody. What do you hear? Oars. Or, I'm a lubber. Listen. There was no seeing anything in that fog, and I heard nothing. Yet Joe swore he did, and suddenly his face assumed a strange look. Somebody rowing out there, I tell you. The bay is alive with oars from the sound. A score of boats at the least. You adult, can you not hear? Then, as I shook my head, he leaped and began to undo the painter. I'm off to sea. Name me liar if the bay is not full of boats, altogether like a close fleet. Are you with me? Yes, I was with him though I heard nothing. Then out in the grayness we went, and the fog closed behind, and before so that we drifted in a vague world of smoke, seeing not and hearing not. We were lost in no time, and I cursed Joe for leading us upon a wild goose chase that was like to end with our being swept out to sea. I thought of Mole Farrell's girl and shuddered. How long we drifted, I know not. Minutes fade into hours, hours into centuries. Still Joe swore he heard the oars, now close at hand, not far away, and for hours we followed them, steering our course toward the sound as the noise grew or receded. Then I later thought of, and could not understand. Then, when my hands were so numb that I could no longer hold the oar, and the forerunning drowsiness of cold and exhaustion was stealing over me, bleak white stars broke through the fog, which glided suddenly away, fading like a ghost of smoke, and we found ourselves afloat just outside the mouth of the bay. The waters lay smooth as a pond, all dark green and silver in the starlight, and the cold came crisper than ever. I was swinging the boat about to put back into the bay when Joe gave a shout, and for the first time I heard the clack of oarlocks. I glanced over my shoulder and my blood went cold. A great beak prow loomed above us, a weird, unfamiliar shape against the stars, and as I caught my breath, sheared sharply and swept by us, with a curious swishing I never heard any other craft make. Joe screamed and backdoored frantically and the boat walled out of the way just in time, for though the prow missed us still otherwise we had died, for from the sides of the ship stood long oars, bank upon bank, which swept her along. Though I had never seen such a craft, I knew her for a galley, but what was she doing upon our coasts? They said the farfarers, that ships were still in use among the heathens of Barbary. But it was many a long heaving mile to Barbary, and even so she did not resemble the ships described by those who had sailed far. We started in pursuit, 
and this was strange, for though the waters broke about her prow, as she seemed fairly to fly through the waves, yet she was making little speed, and it was no time before we caught up with her, making our painter fast to a chain far back beyond the reach of the swishing oars, we hailed those on deck, but there came no sound, and at last conquering our fears, we clambered up the chain and found ourselves upon the strangest deck man has trod for many a long roaring century. This is no Barbary rover, muttered Joe fearsomely. Look how old it seems, almost ready to fall to pieces. Why, tis fairly rotten. There was no one on deck, no one at the long sweep with which the craft was steered. We stole to the hold and looked down the stair. Then and there, if ever men were on the verge of insanity, it was we. For there were rowers there, it is true. They sat upon the rowers' benches and drove the creaking oars through the great waters. And they that rowed were skeletons. Shrieking, we plunged across the deck to fling ourselves into the sea. But at the rail I tripped upon something and fell headlong. And as I lay, I saw a thing which vanquished my fear of the horrors below for an instant. The thing upon which I had tripped was a human body, and in the dim gray light that was beginning to steal across the eastern waves, I saw a dagger hilt standing up between his shoulders. Joe was at the rail, urging me to haste, and together we slid down the chain and cut the painter. Then we stood off into the bay. Straight on kept the grim galley, and we followed, slowly wondering. She seemed to be heading straight for the beach beside the wharfs, and as we approached, we saw the wharfs thronged with people. They had missed us, no doubt, and now they stood there in the early dawn light, struck dumb by the apparition which had come up out of the night and the grim ocean. Straight on swept the galley, her oars a swish, then ere she reached the shallow water, crash. A terrific reverberation shook the bay. Before our eyes the grim craft seemed to melt away, then she vanished, and the green water seethed where she had written, but there floated no driftwood there, nor did there ever float any ashore. Aye, something floated ashore, but it was grim driftwood. We made the landing and made a hum of excited conversation that stopped suddenly. Maul Farrell stood before her hut, limbed gauntly against the ghostly dawn, her lean hand pointing seaward, and across the sighing wet sands, borne by the great tide, something came floating, something that the waves dropped at Maul Farrell's feet and there looked up at us, as we crowded about, a pair of unseeing eyes set in the still white face. John Kulrek had come home. Still and grim he lay, rocked by the tide, and as he lurched sideways, all saw the dagger hilt that stood from his back, the dagger all of us had seen a thousand times at the belt of lithe-lipped Canul. I, I killed him, came Canul's shriek as he writhed and groveled before our gaze, at sea, on a still night in a drunken brawl, I slew him, and hurled him overboard. And from the far seas he's as followed me, his voice sank to his whisper, because of the curse, the sea would not keep his body. And the wretch sank down trembling, the shadow of the gallows already in his eyes. I, strong, deep, and exultant, was Maul Farrell's voice, from the hell of lost craft Satan, sent a ship of bygone ages a ship red with gore, and stained with the memory of horrid crimes. None other would bear such a vile carcass. The sea has taken vengeance, and has given me mine. See now how I spit upon the face 
of John Coolrick. And with a ghastly laugh, she pitched forward, the blood starting to her lips, and the sun came up across the restless sea. The Brute by Joseph Conrad Dodging in from the rain-swept street, I exchanged a smile and a glance with Miss Blank in the bar of the Three Crows. This exchange was effected with extreme propriety. It is a shock to think that, if still alive, Miss Blank must be something over sixty now. How time passes. Noticing my gaze directed inquiringly at the partition of glass and varnished wood, Miss Blank was good enough to say encouragingly, Only Mr. German and Mr. Stone are in the parlor, with another German I've never seen before. I moved towards the parlor door, a voice discoursing on the other side. It was but a matchboard partition, rose so loudly that the concluding words became quite plain and all their atrocity. That fellow Wilmot fairly dashed her brains out, and a good job, too. This inhuman sentiment, since there was nothing profane or improper in it, failed to do as much as to check the slight yawn Miss Blank was achieving behind her hand, and she remained gazing fixedly at the window panes, which streamed with rain. As I opened the parlor door, the same voice went on in the same cruel strain. I was glad when I heard she got the knock from somebody at last. Sorry enough for poor Wilmot, though. That man and I used to be chums at one time. Of course, that was the end of him. A clear case if ever there was one. No way out of it. None at all. The voice belonged to the gentleman Miss Blank had never seen before. He straddled his long legs on the hearth rug. German, leaning forward, held his pocket handkerchief spread out before the grate. He looked back dismally over his shoulder, and as I slipped behind one of the little wooden tables, I nodded to him. On the other side of the fire, imposingly calm and large, sat Mr. Stoner, jammed tight into a capacious Windsor armchair. There was nothing small about him but his short, white side whiskers, yards and yards of extra superfine blue cloth, made up into an overcoat reposed on a chair by his side. And he must have just brought some liner from sea, because another chair was smothered under his black waterproof, ample as a pall and made of threefold oil silk, double-stitched throughout. A man's handbag of the usual size looked like a child's toy on the floor near his feet. I did not nod to him. He was too big to be nodded to in that parlor. He was a senior Trinity pilot, and condescended to take his turn in the cutter only during the summer months. He had been many times in charge of royal yachts in and out of Port Victoria. Besides, it's no use nodding to a monument, and he was like one. He didn't speak. He didn't budge. He just sat there, holding his handsome old head up, immovable and almost bigger than life. It was extremely fine. Mr. Stoner's presence reduced old German to a mere shabby wisp of a man, and made the talkative stranger in tweeds on the hearthrug look absurdly boyish. The latter must have been a few years over thirty, and was certainly not the sort of individual that gets abashed at the sound of his own voice, because gathering me in, as it were by a friendly glance, he kept it going without a check. I was glad of it, he repeated emphatically. You may be surprised at it, but then you haven't gone through the experience I've had of her. I can tell you, there's something to remember. Of course, I got off scot-free myself, as you can see. She did her best to break up my pluck for me, though. She jolly near drove as fine a fellow as ever lived into a madhouse. What do you say to that, hmm? 
Not an eyelid twitched in Mr. Stoner's enormous face. Monumental. The speaker looked straight into my eyes. It used to make me sick to think of her going about the world murdering people. German approached the handkerchief a little nearer to the grate and groaned. It was simply a habit he had. I've seen her once, he declared, with mournful indifference. She had a house. The stranger in tweeds turned to stare down at him, surprised. She had three houses, he corrected authoritatively, but German was not to be contradicted. She had a house, I say, he repeated with dismal obstinacy, a great, big, ugly white thing. You could see it from miles away, sticking up. So you could, assented the other readily. It was old Colchester's notion, though he was always threatening to give her up. He couldn't stand her racket any more, he declared. It was too much of a good thing for him. He would wash his hands of her, if he never got hold of another, and so on. I dare say he would have chucked her only. It may surprise you. His missus wouldn't hear of it. Funny, huh? But with women, you never know how they will take a thing. And Mrs. Colchester, with her mustaches and big eyebrows, set up for being as strong-minded as they make them, she used to walk about in a brown silk dress with a great gold cable flopping about her bosom. You should have heard her snapping out, rubbish, or stuff and nonsense. I dare say she knew when she was well off. They had no children and had never set up a home anywhere. When in England she just made shift to hang out anyhow in some cheap hotel or boarding house. I dare say she liked to get back to the comforts she was used to. She knew very well she couldn't gain by any change. And moreover, Colchester, though a first-rate man, was not what you may call in his first youth. And perhaps she may have thought that he wouldn't be able to get a hold of another, as he used to say, so easily. Anyhow, for one reason or another it was rubbish and stuff and nonsense for the good lady. I overheard once young Mr. Apps himself say to her confidentially, I assure you, Mrs. Colchester, I'm beginning to feel quite unhappy about the name she's getting for herself. Oh, says she with her deep little hoarse laugh. If one took notice of all the silly talk, and she showed Apps all her ugly false teeth at once, it would take more than that to make me lose my confidence in her, I assure you, says she. At this point, without any change of facial expression, Mr. Stoner emitted a short sardonic laugh. It was very impressive, but I didn't see the fun. I looked from one to another. The stranger on the hearthrug had an ugly smile. And Mr. Apps shook both Mrs. Colchester's hands. He was so pleased to hear good words said for their favorite. All these Appses, young and old, you know, were perfectly infatuated with that abominable, dangerous... I beg your pardon, I interrupted, for he seemed to be addressing himself exclusively to me, but who on earth are you talking about? I am talking of the Apps family, he answered courteously. I nearly let out a damn at this, but just then the respected Miss Blank put her head in and said that the cab was at the door. If Mr. Stoner wanted to catch the 11-3 up, at once the senior pilot arose in his mighty bulk and began to struggle into his coat with awe-inspiring upheavals. The stranger and I hurried impulsively to his assistance, and directly we laid our hands on him, he became perfectly quiescent. We had to raise our arms very high, and to make efforts. It was like comparison a docile elephant. With a thanks, gentlemen, he dived under and squeezed himself through the door in a great hurry. 
We smiled at each other in a friendly way. I wonder how he manages to hoist himself up a ship's side ladder, said the man in tweeds. And poor German, who was a mere North Sea pilot, without official status or recognition of any sort, pilot only by courtesy, groaned. He makes eight hundred a year. Are you a sailor? I asked the stranger, who had gone back to his position on the rug. I used to be till a couple of years ago when I got married, answered this communicative fellow. I even went to sea first in that very ship we were speaking of when you came in. What ship? I asked, puzzled. I never heard you mention a ship. I've just told you her name, my dear sir, he replied. The Apps family. Surely you've heard of the great firm of Apps and Sons. Ship owners. They had a pretty big fleet. There was the Lucy Apps and the Harold Apps and Anne, John, Malcolm, Clara, Juliet, and so on. No end of Appses. Every brother, sister, aunt, cousin, wife, and grandmother too, all, I think, the firm of that ship named after them. Good, solid, old-fashioned craft they were too, built to carry and to last. None of your newfangled labor-saving appliances in them, but plenty of men and plenty of good salt beef and a hardtack put aboard, and off you go to fight your way out and home again. The miserable German made a sound of approval which sounded like a groan of pain. Those were the ships for him. He pointed out in doleful tones that you couldn't say to labor-saving appliances. Jump lively now, my hearties. No labor-saving appliance would go aloft on a dirty night with the sands under your lee. No, assented the stranger with a wink at me. The Apses didn't believe in them either, apparently. They treated their people well, as people don't get treated nowadays, and they were awfully proud of their ships. Nothing ever happened to them. This last one, the Apps family, was to be like the others, only she was to be still stronger, still safer, still more roomy and comfortable. I believe they meant her to last forever. They had her built, composite, iron, teakwood, and greenheart, and her scantly was something fabulous. If ever an order was given for a ship in the spirit of pride, this one was. Everything of the best. The Commodore Captain of the employee was to command her, and they planned the accommodation for him like a house on shore, under a big tall poop that went nearly to the mainmast. No wonder Mrs. Colchester wouldn't let the old man give her up. Why, it was the best home she ever had in all her married days. She had a nerve, that woman. The fuss that was made while that ship was building. Let's have this a little stronger, and that a little heavier, and hadn't that other thing better be changed for something a little thicker? The builders entered into the spirit of the game, and there she was, growing into the clumsiest, heaviest ship of her size right before all their eyes, without anybody becoming aware of it somehow. She was to be 2,000 tons register, or a little over, no less on any account. But see what happens? When they came to measure her, she turned out 1,999 tons and a fraction. General consternation. And they say old Mr. Apps was so annoyed when they told him that he took to his bed and died. The old gentleman had retired from the firm 25 years before and was 96 years old if a day, so his death wasn't perhaps so surprising. Still, Mr. Lucian Apps was convinced that his father would have lived to a hundred. So we may put him at the head of the list. Next comes the poor devil of a shipwright that brute caught and squashed as she went off the ways. They called it the launch of a ship, but I've heard people say that from the wailing and yelling and scrambling out of the way, it was more like letting a devil loose upon the river. 
she snapped all her checks like pack threads and went for the tugs in attendance like a fury. Before anybody could see what she was up to, she sent one of them to the bottom and laid up another for three months. Repairs. One of her cables parted and suddenly, you couldn't tell why, she let herself be brought up with the other as quiet as a lamb. That's how she was. You could never be sure what she would be up to next. There are ships difficult to handle, but generally you can depend on them behaving rationally. With that ship, whatever you did with her, you never knew how it would end. She was a wicked beast, or perhaps she was only just insane. He uttered his supposition in so earnest a tone that I could not refrain from smiling. He left off fighting his lower lip to apostrophize me. Huh, why not? Why couldn't there be something in her build, in her lines corresponding to... What, madness? Only something just a tiny bit wrong in the make of your brain. Why shouldn't there be a mad ship? I mean mad in a ship-like way, so that under no circumstances could you be sure she would do what any other ship would naturally do for you. They are ships that steer wildly, and ships that can be quite trusted always to stay. Others want careful watching when running in a gale, and again there may be a ship that will make heavy weather of it in very little blow. But then you expect her to be always so. You take it as part of her character, as a ship, just as you take account of a man's peculiarities of temper when you deal with him. But with her, you couldn't. She was unaccountable. If she wasn't mad, then she was the most evil-minded, underhand, savage brute that ever went afloat. I've seen her run in a heavy gale beautifully for two days, and on the third day, broached to twice in the same afternoon. The first time she flung the helmsman clean over the wheel, but as she didn't quite manage to kill him, she had another try about three hours afterwards. She swamped herself fore and aft, burst all the canvas we had set, scared all hands into a panic, and even frightened Mrs. Colchester down there in those beautiful stern cabins that she was so proud of. When we mustered the crew, there was one man missing, swept overboard, of course, without being seen or heard. Poor devil. And I only wondered more of us didn't go. Always something like that. Always. I heard an old mate tell Captain Colchester once that I had come to this with him, that he was afraid to open his mouth to give any sort of order. She was as much of a terror in harbor as at sea. You could never be certain what would hold her. On the slightest provocation, she would start snapping ropes, cables, wall halsers, like carrots. She was heavy, clumsy, unhandy. But that does not quite explain that power for mischief she had. You know, somehow, when I think of her, I can't help remembering what we heard of incurable lunatics breaking loose now and then. He looked at me inquisitively, but of course I couldn't admit that a ship could be mad. In the ports where she was known, he went on, they dreaded the sight of her. She thought nothing of knocking away twenty feet or so of solid stone facing off a quay or wiping off the end of a wooden wharf. She must have lost miles of chain and hundreds of tons of anchors in her time. When she fell aboard some poor offending ship, it was a very devil of a job to haul her off again and she never got hurt herself. Just a few scratches or so, perhaps. They had wanted to have her strong, and so she was, strong enough to ramp polar ice with. And as she began, so she went on. From the day she was launched, she never let a year pass without murdering somebody. I think the owners got very worried about it. 
But they were a stiff-necked generation, all these apses. They wouldn't admit there could be anything wrong with the apse family. They couldn't even change her name. Stuff and nonsense, as Mrs. Colchester used to say. They ought to at least have shut her up for life in some dry dock or other, away up the river, and never let her smelt salt water again. I assure you, my dear sir, that she invariably did kill some one every voyage she made. It was perfectly well known. She got a name for it far and wide. I expressed my surprise that a ship with such a deadly reputation could ever get a crew. Then, you don't know what sailors are, my dear sir. Let me just show you by an instance. One day in dock at home, while loafing on the forecastle head, I noticed two respectable salts come along, one a middle-aged, competent, steady man, evidently, the other a smart, youngish chap. They read the name on the bows and stopped to look at her. Says the elder man, Apps family. That's the sanguinary female dog. I'm putting it in that way of a ship. Jack, that kills a man every voyage. I wouldn't sign in her in. Not for Joe, I wouldn't. And the other says, if she were mine, I'd have her towed on the mud and set on fire. Blam me if I wouldn't. Then the first man chimes in. Much do they care. Men are cheap, God knows. The younger one spat in the water alongside. They won't have me, not for double wages. They hung about for some time and then walked up the dock. Half an hour later, I saw them both on our deck, looking about for the mate and apparently very anxious to be taken on. And they were. How do you account for this, I asked. What would you say, he retorted. Recklessness. The vanity of boasting in the evening to all their chums. We've just shipped in that their apps family. Blow her. She ain't going to scare us. Sheer sailor-like perversity. A sort of curiosity. Well, a little of all that, no doubt. I put the question to them in the course of the voyage. The answer of the elderly chap was, A man can die but once. The younger assured me in a mocking tone. Then wanted to see how she would do it this time. But I tell you what, there was a sort of fascination about the brute. German, who seemed to have seen every ship in the world, broke in sulkily. I saw her once, out of this very window, towing up the river, a great, black, ugly thing, going along like a big hearse. Something sinister about her looks, wasn't there? said the man in tweeds, looking down at old German with a friendly eye. I always had a sort of horror of her. She gave me a beastly shock when I was no more than fourteen, the very first day, nay, hour, I joined her. Father came up to see me off and was to go down to Gravesend with us. I was the second boy to go to sea. My big brother was already an officer then. We got on board about eleven in the morning and found the ship ready to drop out of the basin stern first. She had not moved three times her own length when, at a little pluck, the tug gave her to enter the dock gates. She made one of her rampaging starts and put such a weight on the check rope, a new six-inch dosser, that forward there had no chance to ease it around in time, and it parted. I saw the broken end fly up high in the air. The next moment that brute brought her quarter against the pierhead with a jar that staggered everybody about her decks. She didn't hurt herself, not she, but one of the boys the mates had sent aloft on the mizzen to do something came down on the poop deck, thump, right in front of me. He was not much older than myself, we had been grinning at each other only a few minutes before. He must have been handling himself carelessly, not expecting to get such a jerk. I heard a startled cry. 
Oh, in a high treble as he felt himself going and looked up in time to see him go limp all over as he fell. Poor father was remarkably white about the gills when we shook hands in Gravesend. Are you all right, he says, looking hard at me. Yes, father. Quite sure? Yes, father. Well then, good boy, my boy. He told me afterwards that for half a word he would have carried me off home with him there and then. I am the baby of the family, you know, added the man in tweed, stroking his mustache with an ingenious smile. I acknowledge this interesting communication by a sympathetic murmur. He waved his hand carelessly. This might have utterly spoiled a chap's nerve for going aloft, you know, utterly. He fell within two feet of me, cracking his head on a mooring bit. Never moved. Stone dead. Nice-looking little fellow he was. I had just been thinking we would be great chums. However, that wasn't yet the worst that brute of a ship could do. I served in her three years of my time, and then I got transferred to the Lucy Apps for a year. The sailmaker we had in the Apps family turned up there too, and I remember him saying to me on one evening after we had been a week at sea, Isn't she a meek little ship? No wonder we thought the Lucy Apps a dear meek little ship after getting clear of that big rampaging savage brute. It was like heaven. Your officers seemed to me the restfulest lot of men on earth. To me, who had known no ship but the Apps family, the Lucy was like a sort of magic craft that did what you wanted her to do of her own accord. One evening we got caught back pretty sharply from right ahead. In about ten minutes we had her full again. Sheets aft, tacks down, decks cleared, and the officer of the watch leaning against the weather rail peacefully. It seemed simply marvelous to me. The others would have stuck for half an hour in irons, rolling her decks full of water, knocking the men about, spars cracking, braces snapping, yards taking charge, and a confounded scare going on after because of her beastly rudder which she had a way of flapping about to fit to raise your hair on end. I couldn't get over my wonder for days. Well, I finished my last year of apprenticeship in that jolly little ship. She wasn't so little either, but after that other heavy devil, she seemed but a plaything to handle. I finished my time and passed, and then, just as I was thinking of having three weeks of real good time on shore, I got at breakfast a letter asking me the earliest day I could be ready to join the Apps family as third mate. I gave my plate a shove that shot into the middle of the table. Dad looked at me over his paper. Mother raised her hands in astonishment, and I went out bareheaded into our bit of garden, where I walked around and round for an hour. When I came in again, Mother was out of the dining room, and Dad had shifted birth into his big armchair. The letter was lying on the mantelpiece. It's very credible, to you to get the offer. And very kind of them to make it, he said. And I see also that Charles has been appointed chief mate of that ship for one voyage. There was overleaf, a P.S. to that effect, and Mr. Apps's own handwriting, which I had overlooked. Charlie was my big brother. I don't like very much to have two of my boys together in one ship, father goes on in his deliberate, solemn way, and I may tell you that I would not mind writing Mr. Apps a letter to that effect. Dear old dad, he was a wonderful father. What would you have done? The mere notion of going back, and as an officer too, to be worried and bothered and kept on the jump night and day by that brute made me feel sick. But she wasn't a ship you could afford to fight shy of. Besides, the most genuine excuse 
could not be given without mortally offending absent sons. The firm and I believe the whole family down to the old unmarried aunts in Lancashire had gone desperately touchy about that accursed ship's character. This was the case for entering ready now from your deathbed if you wish to die in their good grace. That's precisely what I did answer by wire to have it over and done with at once. The prospect of being shipmates with my big brother cheered me up considerably, though it made me a bit anxious too. Ever since I remember myself as a little chap, he had been very good to me, and I looked upon him as the finest fellow in the world. And so he was. No better officer ever walked the deck of a merchant ship, and that's a fact. He was a fine, strong, upstanding, suntan young fellow, with his brown hair curling a little and an eye like a hawk. He was just splendid. We hadn't seen each other, for many years and even his time, though he had been in England, three weeks already he hadn't shown up at home yet, but had spent his spare time in Surrey, somewhere making up to Maggie Colchester, old Captain Colchester's niece. Her father, a great friend of Dad's, was in the sugar-broking business, and Charlie made a sort of second home of their house. I wondered what my big brother would think of me. There was a sort of sternness about Charlie's face which never left it, not even when he was larking in his rather wild fashion. He received me with a great shout of laughter. He seemed to think my joining as an officer the greatest joke in the world. There was a difference of ten years between us, and I suppose he remembered me best in pitifors. I was a kid of four when he first went to sea. It surprised me to find how boisterous he could be. Now we shall see what you are made of, he cried. And he told me off by the shoulders and punched my ribs and hustled me into his berth. Sit down, Ned. I'm glad of the chance of having you with me. I'll put the finishing touch to you, my young officer, providing you're worth the trouble. And first of all, get it well into your head that we are not going to let this brute kill anybody this voyage. We'll stop her racket. I perceived he was in dead earnest about it. He talked grimly of the ship and how we must be careful and never allow this ugly beast to catch us napping with any of her damn tricks. He gave me a regular lecture on special seamanship for the use of the Apps family. Then, changing his tone, he began to talk at large, rattling off the wildest, funniest nonsense, till my sides ached with laughing. I could see very well he was a bit above himself with high spirits. It couldn't be because of my coming, not to that extent. But, of course, I wouldn't have dreamt of asking what was the matter. I had a proper respect for my big brother, I can tell you. But it was all made plain enough a day or two afterwards when I heard that Miss Maggie Colchester was coming for the voyage. Uncle was giving her a sea trip for the benefit of her health. I don't know what could have been wrong with her health. She had a beautiful color and a deuce of a lot of fair hair. She didn't care a rap for wind or rain or spray or sun or green seas or anything. She was blue-eyed, jolly girl of the very best sort. But the way she cheeked my big brother used to frighten me. I always expected it to end in an awful row. However, nothing decisive happened till after we had been in Sydney for a week. One day, in the men's dinner hour, Charlie sticks his head into my cabin. I was stretched out on my back on the sede, smoking in peace. Come ashore with me, Ned, he says in his curt way. I jumped up, of course, and away after him down the gangway and up George Street. He strode along like a giant, and I at his elbow, panting. It was confoundedly hot. Where on earth are you rushing me to, Charlie? I made bold to ask. Here, he says. Here was a jeweler's shop. I couldn't imagine what he could want there. It seemed a sort of mad freak. 
he thrust under my nose three rings, which looked very tiny on his big brown palm, growling out. For Maggie, which? I got kind of scared at this. I couldn't make a sound, but I pointed at the one that sparkled white and blue. He put it in his waistcoat pocket, paid for it with a lot of sovereigns, and bolted out. When we got on board, I was quite out of breath. Shake hands, old chap, I gasped out. He gave me a thump on the back. Give what orders you like to the boatswain when the hands turn to, says he. I'm off duty this afternoon. Then he vanished from the deck for a while, but presently he came out of the cabin with Maggie, and these two went over the gangway publicly, before all hands, going for a walk together on that awful blazing hot day, with clouds of dust flying about. They came back after a few hours, looking very staid, but didn't seem to have the slightest idea where they had been. Anyway, that's the answer they both made to Mrs. Colchester's question at tea time. And didn't she turn on Charlie, with her voice like an old night cabman's? Rubbish. Don't know where you've been. Stuff and nonsense. You've walked the girl off her legs. Don't do it again. It's surprising how meek Charlie could be with that old woman. Only on one occasion he whispered to me, I'm jolly glad she isn't Maggie's aunt except by marriage. There's no sort of relationship. But I think he let Maggie have too much of her own way. She was hopping all over that ship in her yachting skirt and red tam o'shanter like a bright bird on a dead black tree. The old salts used to grin to themselves when they saw her coming along and offered to teach her knots or splices. I believe she liked the men for Charlie's sake, I suppose. As you may imagine, the diabolic propensities of that cursed ship were never spoken of on board, not in the cabin at any rate, only once in the homeward passage. Charlie said incautiously something about bringing all her crew home this time. Captain Colchester began to look uncomfortable at once, and that silly, hard-bitten old woman flew out at Charlie as though he had said something indecent. I was quite confounded myself. As to Maggie, she sat completely mystified, opening her blue eyes very wide. Of course, before she was a day older, she warmed it all out of me. She was a very difficult person to lie to. How awful! She said quite solemn, so many poor fellows. I'm glad the voyage is nearly over. I won't have a moment's peace about Charlie now. I assured her Charlie was all right. It took more than that ship knew to get over a seaman like Charlie, and she agreed with me. Next day, we got the tug off Dungeness, and when the tow rope was fast, Charlie rubbed his hands and said to me in an undertone, We've baffled her, Ned. Looks like it, I said with a grin at him. It was beautiful weather and the sea as smooth as mill pond. We went up the river without a shadow of trouble except once, when off Whole Haven the brute took a sudden shear and nearly had a barge anchored just clear of the fairway. But I was aft, looking after the steering, and she did not catch me napping that time. Charlie came up on the poop, looking very concerned. Close shave, says he. Never mind, Charlie. I answered cheerily, you've tamed her. We were to tow right up to the dock, the river pilot boarded us below Gravesend, and the first words I heard him say were, You may just as well take your port anchor on board at once, Mr. Mate. This had been done when I went forward. I saw Maggie on the forecastle, had enjoyed the bustle, and I begged her to go aft, but she took no notice of me, of course. Then Charlie was very busy with the headgear, caught sight of her and shouted in his biggest voice, Get off the forecastle, head Maggie. You're in the way there. For all answer, she made a funny face at him, and I saw poor Charlie turn away, hiding a smile. She was flushed with the excitement of getting home again, and her blue eyes seemed 
to snap electric sparks as she looked at the river. A collier brig had gone around just ahead of us, and our tug had to stop our engines in a hurry to avoid running into her. In a moment, as is usually the case, all the shipping in the reach seemed to get into a hopeless tangle. A schooner and a catch got up a small collision all to themselves right in the middle of the river. It was exciting to watch, and meantime, our tug remained stopped. Any other ship than that brute could have been coaxed to keep straight for a couple of minutes. But not she. Her head fell off at once, and she began to drift down, taking her tug along with her. I noticed a cluster of coasters at anchor within a quarter of a mile of us, and I thought I'd better speak to the pilot. If you let her get amongst that lot, I said quietly, she will grind some of them to bits before we get her out again. Don't I know her, cries he, stamping his foot in a perfect fury, and he, out with his whistle, to make that bothered tug get the ship's head up again as quick as possible. He blew like mad, waving his arm to port, and presently we could see that the tug's engines had been set going ahead. Her paddles churned the water, but it was as if she had been trying to tow a rock. She couldn't get an inch out of that ship. Again the pilot blew his whistle and waved his arms to port. We could see the tug's paddles turning faster and faster away, brought on our bow. For a moment, tug and ship hung motionless in a crowd of moving shipping, and then the terrific strain, that evil, stony-hearted brute would always put on everything tore the towing chalk clean out. The tow rope surged over, snapping the iron stanchions of the headrail, one after another as if they had been sticks of sealing wax. It was only when I noticed that in order to have a better view over our heads, Maggie had stepped upon the port anchor as it lay flat on the forecastle deck. It had been lowered properly to its hardwood beds, but there had been no time to take a turn with it. Anyway, it was quite secure as it was for going onto deck, but I could see directly that the tow rope would sweep under the fluke in another second. My heart flew up right into my throat, but not before I had time to yell, Jump clear of that anchor! But I hadn't time to shriek out her name. I don't suppose she heard me at all. The first touch of the hawser against the fluke threw her down. She was up on her feet again as quick as lightning, but she was up on the wrong side. I heard a horrid scraping sound, and then that anchor, tipping over, rose up like something alive. Its great rough iron arm caught Maggie round the waist, seeming to clasp her close with a dreadful hug, and flung herself with her over and down in a terrific clang of iron, followed by heavy ringing blows that shook the ship from stern to stem because the ring-stopper held. How horrible, I exclaimed. I used to dream for years afterwards of anchors catching hold of girls, said the man in tweeds a little wildly. He shuddered. With a most pitiful bow, Charlie was over after her almost on the instant. But Lord, he didn't see as much as a gleam of her red tam shanter in the water. Nothing, nothing whatever. In a moment, there were a half dozen boats around us, and he got pulled into one, I with the boatswain and the carpenter, let go the other anchor in a hurry, and brought the ship up somehow. The pilot had gone silly. He walked up and down the forecastle, head wringing his hands and muttering to himself, Killing women now, killing women now. Not another word could you get out of him. Dusk fell, then a night black as pitch, and peering upon the river I heard a low mournful hail. Ship ahoy! Two gravesend watermen came alongside. They had a lantern in their wherry and looked up the ship's side, holding on to the ladder without a word. I saw in the patch of light a lot of loose, fair hair down there. He shuddered again. After the tide turned poor Maggie's body, 
have floated clear of one of them big mooring buoys, he explained. I crept off, feeling half dead and managed to send a rocket up to let the other searchers know on the river, and then I slunk away forward like a cur and spent the night sitting on the heels of the bowsprit so as to be as far as possible out of Charlie's way. Poor fellow, I murmured. Yes, poor fellow, he repeated musingly. That brute wouldn't let him, not even him, cheat her of her prey. But he made her fast and dock next morning, he did. We hadn't exchanged a word, not a single look for that matter. I didn't want to look at him. When the last rope was fast, he put his hands to his head and stood gazing down at his feet as if trying to remember something. The men waited on the main deck for the words that end the voyage. Perhaps that is what he was trying to remember. I spoke for him. That'll do, men. I never saw crew leave a ship so quietly. They sneaked over the rail one after another, taking care not to bang their sea chest too heavily. They looked our way, but not one had the stomach to come up and offer to shake hands with the mate as is usual. I followed him all over the empty ship to and fro, here and there with no living soul about but the two of us, because the old shipkeeper had locked himself up in the galley, both doors. Suddenly poor Charlie muttered in a crazy voice, I'm done here, and strides down the gangway with me at his heels, up the dock, out at the gate, on towards Tower Hill. He used to take rooms with a decent old landlady in America Square to be near to his work. All at once he stops, short, turns around and comes back straight at me. Ned, says he, I am going home. I had the good luck to sight a four-wheeler and got him just in time. His legs were beginning to give way. In our hall he fell down on a chair, and I'll never forget father's and mother's amazed, perfectly still faces as they stood over him. They couldn't understand what had happened to him till I blubbered out. Maggie got drowned yesterday in the river. Mother let out a little cry. Father looks from him to me and from me to him, as if comparing our faces, for upon my soul, Charlie did not resemble himself at all. Nobody moved, and the poor fellow rises, his big brown hand slowly to his throat, and with one single tug rips everything open. Collar, shirt, waistcoat. A perfect wreck and ruin of a man. Father and I got him upstairs somehow, and Mother pretty nearly killed herself nursing him through a brain fever. The man in tweeds nodded at me significantly. There was nothing that could be done with that brute. She had a devil in her. Where's your brother? I asked, expecting to hear he was dead. But he was commanding a smart steamer on the China coast, and never home now. German fetched a heavy sigh, and the handkerchief, being now sufficiently dry, put up tenderly to his red and lamentable nose. She was a ravening beast, the man in tweed started again. Old Colchester put his foot down and resigned. And would you believe it? Absent sons wrote to ask whether he would reconsider his decision. Anything to save the good name of the Apps family. Old Colchester went to the office then and said that he would take charge again, but only to sail her out into the North Sea and scuttle her there. He was nearly off his chump. He used to be darkish iron gray, but his hair went snow white in a fortnight. And Mr. Lucian Apps, they had known each other as young men, pretended not to notice it. Hmm? Here's infatuation, if you like. Here's pride for you. They jumped at the first man they could get to take her, for fear of the scandal of the Apps family not being able to find a skipper. He was a festive soul, I believe, but he stuck to her grim and hard. Wilmot was his second mate. A harem scarum fellow, 
and pretending to a great scorn for all the girls. The fact is, he was really timid. But let only one of them do as much as lift her little finger in encouragement, and there was nothing that could hold that beggar. As apprentice once, he deserted abroad after Petticoat, and would have gone to the dogs then if his skipper hadn't taken the trouble to find him and lug him by the ears out of some house of perdition or other. It was said that one of the firm had been heard once to express a hope that this brood of a ship would get lost soon. I can hardly credit the tale unless it might have been Mr. Alfred Apps, whom the family didn't think much of. They had him in the office, but he was considered a bad egg altogether, always flying off to race meetings and coming home drunk. You would have thought that a ship so full of deadly tricks would run herself ashore some day out of sheer cussedness. But not she. She was going to last forever. She had a nose to keep off the bottom. German made a grunt of approval. A ship after a pilot's own heart, hmm? jeered the man in tweeds. Well, Wilmot managed it. He was the man for it. But even he perhaps couldn't have done the trick without that green-eyed governess or nurse or whatever she was to the children of Mr. and Mrs. Pamphilius. Those people were passengers in her from Port Adelaide to the Cape. Well, the ship went out and anchored outside for the day. The skipper, hospitable soul, had a lot of guests from town to a farewell lunch, as usual with him. It was five in the evening before the last shore boat left aside and the weather looked ugly and dark in the gulf. There was no reason for him to get underway. However, as he had told everybody he was going that day, he imagined it was proper to do so anyhow. But as he had no mind after all these festivities to tackle the straits in the dark, with a scant wind he gave orders to keep the ship under lower topsails and foresail as close as she could lie, dodging along the land till the morning. Then he sought his virtuous couch. The mate was on deck, having his face washed very clean with hard rain squalls. Wilmot relieved him at midnight. The Apt's family had, as you observed, a house on her poop. A big, ugly white thing sticking up, Germans murmured sadly at the fire. That's it. A companion for the cabin stairs and a sort of chart room combined. The rain drove in gust on the sleepy Wilmot. The ship was then surging slowly to the southward, close hauled with a coast within three miles or so to windward. There was nothing to look out for in that part of the gulf, and Wilmot went around to dodge the squalls under the lee of that chart room, whose doors on that side was open. The night was black like a barrel of coal tar, and then he heard a woman's voice whispering to him. That confounded green-eyed girl, the Pamphilius people, had put the kids to bed a long time ago, of course, but it seems couldn't get to sleep herself. She heard eight bells struck, and the chief mate come below to turn in. She waited a bit, then got into her dressing gown and stole across the empty saloon and up the stairs into the chart room. She sat down at the settee near the open door to cool herself, I dare say. I suppose when she whispered to Wilmot, it was as if somebody had stuck a match in the fellow's brain. I don't know how it was that they had got so very thick. I fancy he had met her ashore a few times before. I couldn't make it out, because when telling the story, Wilmot would break off to swear something awful at every second word. We had met on the quay in Sydney, and he had an apron of sacking up to his chin, a big whip in his hand a wagon driver, glad to do anything not to starve. That's what he had come down to. However, there he was, with his head inside the door, on the girl's shoulder as likely as not, officer of the watch. 
The helmsman, on giving his evidence afterward, said that he shouted several times that the binnacle lamp had gone out. It didn't matter to him because his orders were to sail her close. I thought it funny, he said, that the ship should keep on failing off in squalls, but I luffed her up every time as close as I was able. It was so dark I couldn't see my hand before my face, and the rain came in bucketfuls on my head. The truth was that at every squall, the wind hauled aft a little, till gradually the ship came to be heading straight for the coast, without a single soul and her being aware of it. Wilmot himself confessed that he had not been near the standard compass for an hour. He might well have confessed. The first thing he knew was the man on the lookout shouting, Blue murder forward there. He tore his neck free, he says, and yelled back at him, What do you say? I think I hear breakers ahead, sir, howled the man, and came rushing aft with the rest of the watch, in the awfulest blinding deluge that ever fell from the sky. Wilmot says, for a second or so he was so scared and bewildered that he could not remember on which side of the gulf the ship was. He wasn't a good officer, but he was a seaman all the same. He pulled himself together in a second, and the right order sprang to his lips without thinking. They were to hard up with a helm and shiver the main and mizzen topsails. It seemed that the sails actually fluttered. He couldn't see them, but he heard them rattling and banging above his head. No use. She was too slow in going off. He went on, his dirty face twitching and the damn carter whip shaking in his hand. She seemed to stick fast. And then the flutter of the canvas above his head ceased. At this critical moment, the wind hauled aft again, with a gust filling the sails and sending a ship with a great way upon the rocks on her lee bow. She had overreached herself in her little last game. Her time had come. The hour, the man, the black night, the treacherous gust of wind, the right woman to put an end to her. The brute deserved nothing better. Strange are the instruments of providence. It's a special sort of poetic justice. The man in tweeds looked hard at me. The first ledge she went over tripped the false keel off her. Rip. The skipper rushing out of his berth found the crazy woman in a red flannel dressing gown flying round and round the cuddy screeching like a cockatoo. Next bump knocked her clean under the cabin table. It also started the stern post and carried away the rudder, and then that brute ran up a shelving, rocky shore, tearing her bottom out till she stopped short, and it foremost dropped over the bow like a gangway. Anybody lost, I asked. No one, unless that fellow Wilmot, answered the gentleman unknown to Miss Blank, looking round for his cap, and his case was worse than drowning for a man. Everybody got ashore all right. Gale didn't come on till next day, dead from the west, and broke up that brute in a surprisingly short time. It was as though she had been rotten at heart. He changed his tone. Rain left off. I must get my bike and rush home to dinner. I live in Hearn Bay. Came out for a spin this morning. He nodded at me in a friendly way, and went out with a swagger. Do you know who he is, German, I asked. The North Sea pilot shook his head dismally. Fancy losing a ship in that silly fashion. Oh dear, oh dear. He groaned in lugubrious tones, spreading his damp handkerchief again like a curtain before the glowing grate. On going out, exchanged a glance and a smile, strictly proper with the respectable Miss Blank, barmaid of the Three Crows.